Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. Founding board member Tim Dunn gave the following speech titled The Bible and Politics at the 2019 Convention of States Leadership Summit. Uh, at this time, I'd like to introduce somebody who uh, has become one of my best friends over the years. This is a man who, in, in my life personally, as responsible as anybody for opening my eyes to Jesus Christ and bringing me to salvation. He's somebody whose whole family, the Dunn family, have become very close with our family. We consider them family. Uh, he is literally at the center of what we do as an organization. When you hear of our culture, our dedication to God, our sense of uh, servant leadership, all of these things in some measure or another come from Tim. And Tim pastors at a church in Midland, Texas. If you ever get there, I encourage you to go. You guys are in for a real treat this morning to hear from my good friend, Tim Dunn. I don't actually pastor a church. Uh, I attend a church and speak there some, but but Mark tends to exaggerate. You know, you already know that. <clears throat> well, we tend to, as humans, uh, speak about a thing without asking what that thing really is. We do it all the time. And when we speak about politics, we usually don't stop and say, "Well, what is politics?" And you know what it politics is? It's just people interacting with one another in an organized manner. That's all it is. Uh, when we, used to use, we tend to use it as a negative term because people act in negative ways, but it's not necessarily a negative term. Well, what's the Bible mainly about? It's about how to effectively interact with one another in organized ways. So the Bible is actually mainly about politics. Now you're laughing, but I'm going to spend my time this morning proving to you that this is overwhelmingly true from Genesis to Revelation. We're going to be using a lot of scripture, so you're going to see them up on the screens here. You know, you heard Mr. Jefferson say, we've got to read history or we're doomed to repeat the negative lessons. He could have gotten that from 1 Corinthians 10, 11, which says, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Our instruction, they were written down. He was writing a letter to some Greeks in Corinth about Jewish history. So he's writing about the histories of a foreign people so you can learn these lessons from ancient history. Well, we looked up the uh, books that uh, came in the first two crates to Madison yesterday. and A lot of it was ancient history of foreign peoples. But in another way, the Bible's ancient history of a foreign people is our history because we're spiritually grafted into that history. Mr. Jefferson made the point that if the history's written down and we don't read it, it doesn't do us any good. And if we don't learn from it, it doesn't do us any good. And that's exactly what the Bible says because it says, take heed lest you fall, the very next verse. Another way to say that is don't repeat those negative examples and don't think you don't need to learn from it. So what we're going to do today is learn from the Bible and what the Bible shows us how to do is win at life and be really good at politics. That's mainly what it's about. Now you may say, well, wait a minute. Most of what I hear is about spiritual vitality. Well, yeah, that's fine. And that's a big part of the scripture. But what is spiritual vitality 
to do other than to interact effectively with other people as a body. That's the overwhelming message, isn't it? And the head of that body is Christ, not men. And you say, well, wait a minute. The Bible addresses morality and justice. Well, where is morality and justice done? By yourself? It's done interacting with other people. And if you're going to interact with other people, it has to be done in an organized manner most of the time. So it's quite reasonable to wrap into a single statement and say, the Bible is mainly about how to succeed in politics. So I'm going to talk about that from Genesis to Revelation. You know, David Barton, uh, you got to hear from him. And he points out that George Whitfield was really the father of the American Revolution. He was a preacher. He rode on horseback from Maine to Georgia six times preaching to people. It's estimated 80% of Americans heard his preaching. Without George Whitfield, there's no standing army, there's no, or a professional army rather. There's no uh, war of independence. He, he spoke for independence, but he had one main opponent. It was the organized institutional church. David makes the point that the last one to usually get on board is the organized institutional church. Today, George Parna has polled and said roughly 27% of the preachers still believe the Bible's true. And 90% of them agree that the Bible does speak to contemporary issues, but only 10% of them will talk about it. Okay, well, Thomas and Jefferson and Madison both told us if you want to know who's responsible for America, look in the mirror. If you want to know who's responsible for proper teaching, look in the mirror. We have the Bible. It's in our hands. We can all be George Whitfields. And in fact, when we in the Citizens for Self-Governance movement live like Tom Coburn exhorted us to live, we are actually creating a great awakening. We're all George Whitfields. When we started Convention of States, and I was there at the beginning, I knew we had to have a spiritual revival, a great awakening, and a political restoration for our country to come back to its roots. I knew that. What I did not expect is that Convention of States would be an organization that would trigger the great awakening, and that's what's happened. And it's a miracle. And that is why we're doing the Lord's work, if we go around it the right way. Now, arguably, the spirit of our age is Marxism. Marxism believes that you can bring in, in a utopian age, and if you'll just cede your freedom to a small elite, they will make things all better for us. Now, their political philosophy has a moral base. All political philosophies have, a moral, have to have a moral base. Their moral base is materialistic determinism. It's the faith that matter has formed an order itself. And this purposeless first mover has ordered itself into humans and become aware of itself and now seeks purpose. Now, it doesn't take all that much faith to believe that an intelligent and personal being, being created the whole world. And that being had purpose and made a world with purpose. But it takes a whale a lot of faith to believe that an impersonal and mindless matter created mindful and aware intelligent people. So give them credit for their faith. Well, since they have something that's really almost impossible to believe, they have to be really clever. 
and their job is to entrap and enslave. So their primary skill has to be to deceive. And they deceive the same way the, their founder deceived all the way back in the Garden of Eden. See, I said I was going to start in Genesis. And he was an expert at framing. He is an expert at framing. The Marxists are an expert at framing. And he said, did God really say this or did he really say that? That's framing. Well, they've done something very clever. They've advanced and won a definition of religion. And this is their definition. All faith propositions that don't involve, I'm sorry, all faith propositions that involve the supernatural. That's what religion is. In other words, all faiths other than faith in materialism. And then they advanced the notion that religion and politics don't mix. And that means that since politics always has to have a moral foundation, the only allowable moral foundation is theirs. You got to give it to them. But it's a lie. As the great tyrant Lucifer, the accuser, has two weapons, murder and deception, so they have those two weapons. The truth is the Bible's mainly a book about politics. So what do we do? We fight back. As Dr. Coburn said yesterday, with shrewdness and grace, Jesus perceived the shrewdness of the Pharisees. And when they framed a question, should we pay taxes or not? He didn't answer their framing. He framed it right back to them. Can you tell the difference between the kingdom of God and Rome? And they shut up because he was shrewder than they were. <laughs> and we do that daily by living out our faith daily. If we are the kind of zealots that serve ourselves, it'll be a disaster. If we serve others, we're doing the Great Commission. You know, I've looked in the Bible for commands to share our faith, particularly commands to share our faith with our mouth. I've looked all through the epistles. You know how many I've found? Given, given how many times that's emphasized in our, our uh, world, Christian world, you'd think it would be on every page. You know, I found one. It's in 1 Peter 3. And it says this, even if you should suffer for righteousness' snake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's within you. With meekness and fear. So, we're to share our faith when somebody looks and says, how can you do that? How can you be yelled at by that legislator and just stand there and smile? How can you do that? Well, I'll be glad to tell you how I can do that. We're not really supposed to use words all that much, but on every page, every page, we're supposed to live it. And especially when we're being persecuted. You could, you could summarize it up by this, never react. Always make choices based on values. Well, it says meekness and fear. This word meekness does not mean to look at your shoes. It's a Greek word that was used for war horses. They would pass a torch under the war horse to see if it was meek. If it was ready for battle to do what it was supposed to do in the battle. 
And the fear it's talking about is the fear of the Lord. Are you more afraid of pleasing God or pleasing these people that are criticizing you? That's what the Marxists count on. They count on you being afraid of them more than you're afraid of God. And when I say afraid of God, not if he's going to hit you. But who do you want to get approval from? That's what I'm talking about. Well, what did Jesus command? What was his big command? Well, he said, love God, love others, right? Two great commandments. Now I ask you, what sort of statement is love your neighbors at yourself? It's a political statement. It's how to organize one another. There's two ways you can interact with one of people. One is to try to get extract from them. And if you have that, you have a whole room full of tick relationships. Everybody trying to suck blood from each other. And if you have, when you have two ticks and no dog, it doesn't work out all that good. And that's, that's the way we are as humans. But love your neighbor means don't impose upon others. Seek, his, seek their best. In truth, Jesus' whole ministry was a political campaign. It says after he was tempted, he began to preach. And here was his campaign slogan, slogan, repent for the kingdom of heaven is a hand. Kingdom. What kind of word is that? Repent. He understood that the organizing principle to make people effective was started in your hearts, not with a sword. Well, one defense that's often raised against this objective reality is the Bible is just an allegory. You know, you know, this comes from a source of Greek philosophy which infects our world to a major extent, shapes our world to a major extent, would be a better word. And it's from the Gnostics and they had this dualism that said that you can fulfill your appetites completely while still being spiritually pious because material things are evil in and of themselves and spiritual things are wonderful in and of themselves, so it's okay to have both. You can see why that would be popular. All of us do that to varying degrees. But, you know, their image, their image of heaven that we still think about, that we're gonna all spend eternity in heaven and we're gonna float on a cloud and you're gonna be in like this Alzheimer's clinic where there's nothing to do and you just drool all day. You know, is that, that attractive to you? Now, that's not what the Bible says. That, that, that heaven is a Gnostic heaven. We don't have that. You know, we don't even spend eternity in heaven. Where do we spend eternity? On a new earth. And what, what is the culminating event of human history? It's when heaven comes to earth. And God dwells with his people as the king. And what does he want to do to reward those who will live the life that he's lived? Those believers who say, yes, I will follow. What does he want to do? Well, this is stated explicitly in Revelation 3.21. It says this, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. You hear that? Sit with me on my throne, the throne of the entire world. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, the Greek word translated overcome is Nikeo. Nikeo comes from the Greek word Nike. You know the great Greek goddess of Nike, the goddess of tennis shoes. No, no, it's the goddess of victory. And this Greek word is translated over, also prevail, conquer. In the Bible, I'm talking about. Defeat and victory, that's all Nikeo. 
It means to win, to be victorious. If you win at life, I'm going to share my throne with you. Well, that sounds appealing. That's something we ought to do, don't you think? Jesus sat down on the throne because he was victorious at life. So what did he overcome? Well, he overcame shame and rejection. He was already the king as God, but he became the king as a human, as a reward for his faithful service. You're no doubt familiar with the Great Commission. Let's examine it closely for it's a political statement. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. If somebody stands up and says, I now have all authority, what kind of statement is that? Go therefore. And really the participle phrase there should be translated, as you go, make. As you go, make disciples, teaching them to obey my commands. Now, what's the best way to teach, to demonstrate? As you go, make disciples. I'm giving my authority to you. Now, after he said that, the disciples looked at him and said, well, now are you finally going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It wasn't lost on them that Jesus was a politician. And he said, I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to wait for power. And then you do what I tell you to. I'm not going to tell you when I'm going to restore the kingdom to Israel. You see, the 12 disciples, really 11 disciples, 11 of the disciples grew up in Jesus's area. One was from the south, you know him, Judas. The guys that grew up in Jesus's area were all of the Zealot party. One was an official member, Simon the Zealot. The Zealot headquarters was about five miles down the valley. If you go to Israel today, you can go there. When we, when we sponsor trips, we take people to Gamla. Gamla was the headquarters of the Zealot party. You know about Masada, 900 people took their lives instead of being captured by the Romans. Well, at the headquarters city, when Gamla fell, 4,000 jumped off a cliff to keep from getting captured by the Romans. It's only five miles from Capernaum or so. Well, they weren't the brightest bulbs in the box. If you, if you read the Bible for the way it's written, Jesus is always saying, you idiot, don't you understand? You know, don't, don't you get it? You know, don't you, un and, and, and you get it in the scriptures, you know, it's like, and after he was raised from the dead, oh, now they understood, <laughs> right? But you know what they were willing to do? Die for the cause. Because yes. they were zealots. We see this in John 11. Jesus says, let's go down to Judea. Our friend Lazarus is sick. He needs our help. So Thomas, the doubter, speaks what everybody else does. They say, well, they want to kill you down there. You can't go down there. It's dangerous. He said, well, he needs our help. And Thomas in John eleven sixteen, 16, it says, then Thomas, who's called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's also go that we may die with him. This is the doubter. Well, the reason he doubted is because after Jesus surrendered, he didn't understand what was going on. He thought they were going to take over Rome. It was, a, it was a revolution. And suddenly Jesus surrendered. That's why he's, he wasn't afraid to die. None of them were. That's why Jesus chose them. But he reoriented their zealotry. You know, their party, the zealots, tore Israel apart. In 70 AD, there were five, and between 67 and 73, there were five Jewish revolt battles. One of them was the fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem fell, according to the Jew, own Jewish history, 
because of internal strife and division because the zealots were fighting for control. It wasn't this, they wanted to get rid of the tyrant, it was that they wanted to be the tyrant. Well, that's the wrong kind of zealotry. When we're the kind of zealots that Jesus reorients to say, die for the service of the cross, by the way you live, then we are not only exercising the Great Commission, we are living the life that ends in victory. You'd agree, would you not, that throne of a kingdom is a political phrase? Well, the word throne shows up in Revelation 40 times. We started in Genesis, now we're in Revelation. 39 times it refers to the God's throne. One time to Satan's, which is in Pergamos, which was the Roman capital of the Roman province of Asia. And that's where Satan's throne was. And Revelation, believe it or not, it's a real simple book with a very simple message. It has a blessing. It says you get this great blessing if you read, understand, and do the words of this prophecies. Would God ever give us something? Say you get a great blessing if you read it and then give us something we couldn't read? Would he say if you read and understand, give us something you could read but understand? Not understand, brother? That doesn't make any sense. We can read it. We can understand it. And we can do it. Which means it's about now, not the future. If you go to Revelation saying what's going to happen in the future, you'll never figure that out. That's not what it's given for. It's given for we can make application now. And you know what the message of Revelation is? Be a courageous, faithful witness, martyreo. And don't fear rejection. And don't fear death. And if you do, that's the people I'm going to invite to rule my kingdom to come. That's the greatest reward of all. Remember the three servants. One was wicked and lazy. And he reasoned and said, you know, every time you do what God asks you to do, he just gives you more responsibility. (laughs) And I'm not up for that. I'm just going to bury mine in the ground. He was a servant now. He didn't get a reward though. And you know what happened when the master came back and the two that invested wisely, he did just what the wicked and lazy servants expect him to. He said, I'm going to promote you to run a whole bunch of cities. You did a little work, okay, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of work to do. Here's what the wicked and lazy servant didn't count on. Enter into the joy of your master. Here a lot of people say, well, that doesn't sound very good. The new world, I'm going to, I'm going to have all this authority and stuff. I don't want authority over other people. Listen. We were made to rule and reign in perfect harmony in a world where righteousness dwells. It will be the greatest thing possible to rule alongside with people that have other people's best interests at heart. We're in the process now of discovering who that is. This is the great reward of life. Well, how did Jesus overcome? He says, if you overcome as I overcame, But Jesus didn't overcome by inviting himself into his heart. (laughs) Jesus overcame temptation. Satan came to Jesus and said, hey, put your own needs first. You're hungry. And Jesus answered and said, well, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And he said, well, reject God if he won't be your genie. If he's not doing what you expected him to do, then you should reject him. If you prayed and you don't get what you wanted, then you should reject God. And he said, well, it's written, you shouldn't tempt the Lord, 
should just do, accept with great gratitude whatever you get from him. Then Satan ended by offering him political power. He took him up and said, you can have all this now. You don't have to wait. He said, be gone. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Well, this is how we can overcome. When you're in the darkest of all arenas in this world, which is politics, governmental politics, actually church politics, family politics, they're all pretty dark. You know why? They involve other people. The first temptation you're going to get is put yourself first. It's easy to be selfish, isn't it? It comes naturally. Watch the little kids. Mine! They're like seagulls. Mine, mine, mine. And the second temptation is, well, it's not working out like I hoped it would. I'm going to despair. My genie's not working. And the third temptation is to gain political power for ourselves. It takes courage to tell someone that has political power something they don't want to hear. It takes courage to tell a fellow coworker something they don't want to hear. It takes courage to hear something from someone else that you don't want to hear. And it takes courage to listen to someone you know you'll never agree with because you want to understand them and see how you can influence them positively. But Revelation 21.8 says this. I want you to fill in the blank. But the blank, unbelieving, abominable, Murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's pretty bad, isn't it? Unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers. Nobody's going to join a club with that on the banner. You know, come join. What's in the blank? What goes in the blank? Anybody know? Cowardly. And we can talk a lot about what that verse means. As a matter of fact, we could have a lot of fun with that verse. It's kind of mind-blowing when you start digging into it. But one thing we can all agree on is being cowardly is not something God likes very much. You know what he likes? Courage. Courage to fight. He got those 11 disciples because he knew they were willing to die for their cause. And fight they did. And die they did. Note that his uh, phrase is conditional. I'll share my throne with you if you overcome. All authority is given unto me in heaven on earth. Some will qualify, some won't. It's not an easy thing to do. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with becoming a child of God. Any of you uh, participate in your physical birth? How many of you planned your physical birth, your own physical birth? <laughs> How many of you were aware of your own physical birth? <laughs> Do you spend a lot of time looking back, wondering if you were born? <laughs> well, he uses the birth for a reason. He said, here's how you get spiritually born. As the serpent was lifted up in this wilderness, so must the son of man must be lifted up. Here's the story. They're in the wilderness. They're all bitten by snakes. They're full of venom. They're going to die. They say, hey, we're dying. We want to live. And God instructs Aaron to put a brass snake on a pole and lift it up. And he says, if you'll believe me just enough to look at that snake, I will make sure you never die of that venom. And they do. And Jesus says, I'm going to be on a pole too, a cross. And if you'll have enough faith to look at that, hoping you won't die and wishing to live, then I'll make you my child. 
There's nothing hard about being born. You know what's hard? Growing up. And don't miss this. We were made to grow up and reign and rule in perfect harmony with one another, the entire earth. Look at Psalm 8. It's explicit about this. I'm going to read 1 through 8, and I'm going to skip 2 because it's a little bit of a curveball. I'll come back to it. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you've made him a little lower than the angels, but you crowned him with glory and honor because you put him in dominion over all the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet, the sheep, the oxen, the beast of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Well, what's clear here is God made man to rule the earth, even the fish of the sea. That's why we like SeaWorld. We're supposed to be friends with those creatures and lead them around. But look at verse 2. There's a little curveball in there. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you've ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. You know, if you see a newborn babe... A nursing infant, you know he hadn't been here very long. You know he's kind of new. And that's us as humans. We're inferior to the angels. We don't have near as much power as they do. We hadn't been here very long. They've been here a long time. And we're the ones God want to rule the world. You know why? Because Lucifer had that job and he was fired. <laughs> you know why he was fired? Because he was made to serve and he decided to be a tyrant. We've been in this room for three days under the symbol of Virginia. Have you noticed the picture on there? It's of a warrior standing with his foot on the chest of a vanquished foe. And it says, sic semper tyrannis, which is Latin for thus always to tyrants. You know who designed it, according to Garrett, told me this yesterday, George Mason. That is what we're supposed to do. And how do we do it? By working in harmony with one another and loving and serving others. Just like Dr. Coburn told us yesterday. The ultimate tyrant of the universe wants just the opposite. And our job is to shut him up by living out self-governance. Should come as no surprise that he's still on his throne, although he's lost his election. But the new inauguration hadn't taken place yet. We're just in a lame duck session. <laughs> but the time's coming in the new earth when, as according to Revelation 5, 9 through 10, it says, you've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to God and we shall reign on the earth. So Convention of States is filling something in your heart because God made it there. We know instinctively we were made to rule and reign, but having tyrants tell us what to do is not right. 
But what kind of zealot are we going to be? Are we going to be the kind of zealot that raises up, gets the power, and then becomes a tyrant ourselves, like the Jewish zealots did? Are we going to be the kind of redirected zealot, like the disciples were? Although we're hard-headed and determined, people can't tell us what to do, and we're rebellious against authority, we'd rather become that meek warhorse. And we're channeled into doing what God asks us to do, loving and serving one another. Well, as soon as the people came out of Egypt and went to the promised land, and God set up their nation, how did he set it up? We can look at this as one of these examples we can go by. Well, the first thing he did is gave them law, the rule of law. And then he, in the rule of law, he gave them two basic commandments divided into 10. The first five basically say God gets to make the rules. And the fifth one says if, if you're not old enough to understand that, then you've got to listen to your parents. <laughs> and the last five say I want you to respect the personal sovereignty of every other individual. Don't take their stuff. Don't hurt their person. Don't ruin their family. Don't even envy them. Because it's an organizing principle. It's our political foundation, the rule of law. That's the first pillar of self-governance. Self-governance is what the Bible advocates for humanity from Genesis to Revelation. The second pillar of self-governance he gave after the first generation who wouldn't fight were led into the wilderness to go to a retirement home where they lived on social security <laughs> in the desert with irrigated water. And you'd say, well, that's nice. Well, no, it wasn't nice because they didn't get their inheritance. And he raised up a generation that would fight because that's what we're called to is to be warriors. Ephesians 6 says, get up every morning, and put your centurion uniform on, your faith centurion uniform. Paul knew what a centurion was. It was the meanest fighting machine ever known to man by that time. And we're supposed to put that on every morning because we're supposed to fight. Well, he raised a generation that would fight. And right before they went into the land, he said, choose from among yourself judges. God knew who the best judges would be, but he said, you choose. Because he would lay in the second pillar of self-governance, consent of the governed. Knowing that when you're going to have human governors, human judges, they're fallible and they need accountability and when they have to have consent of the governed, you have to have accountability. Rule of law, consent of the governed. And the third pillar was private property. They took the high ground, they divvied the whole land into private property. You can't respect other people's uh, personal sovereignty if there's no private property. And they had a period of 450 years of self-governance. Self-governance started in America 400 years ago when it, Virginia started meeting with a representative government right here. We've got 50 years to go. Unless God is gracious to us, which we hope we will be. So he gave those three pillars of self-governance. For 450 years, they were self-governing. They messed it up quite often. When they did, they fell into oppression. And then God would deliver them. That's hopeful to us. But here's what self-governance is supposed to look like. It's in Judges 5. Deborah and Barak had just 
executed this big deliverance. And they sang a song, and it starts this way. When leaders led in Israel, when the people willingly offered themselves, bless the Lord. That's what self-governance is supposed to look like. When you have leaders who, when they stick their neck out, their head goes first. But if they win, the people benefit. That's the kind of leadership jobs we're supposed to have. And that's the kind of leaders we're supposed to have. And the people stand up and say, we will willingly volunteer because we believe in the mission. That's what self-governance looks like. It's the only way self-governance thrives. Well, COS only blessed, be blessed if the leaders lead. That's why we have this servant leadership program. I hope everybody here becomes a trainer in it. And it'll only work if the people volunteered. The left's army is hired guns, paid protesters, using stolen money. Well, after 450 years of self-governance, Samuel, the judge, had some corrupt sons. And the people came and said, we don't want your corrupt sons, which was right. But their solution was, we want a king. And they gave three reasons they wanted a king. One is they didn't want to be exceptional anymore. We don't want to be the exception. We want to be like the other countries. You heard that before? They didn't want to do the hard work of volunteering. They just wanted to turn it over to the experts. We want someone to judge us. And they didn't want to fight anymore. We want somebody else to fight our battles for us. Samuel came to God and said, man, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I let you down. God said, they didn't reject you. They're rejecting me that I should reign over them. Folks, when we behave in a self-governing manner, whether it's family, city, county, organization, or country, we're choosing God as king. When we act as tyrants, whether it's as dad, boss, organizational leader, or elected official, we're on the wrong side of that picture. Well, God said, I'm going to judge them, Samuel. And most of the time, God's judgment follows this way. Okay, if you're going to be that way, I'm going to give you what you asked for. Most of the time, that's God's judgment. So here's what he says, God speaking. He says, now, this is 1 Samuel 8, 9 through 18. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. And now God gives a political speech. So Samuel told all the words of the people and asked them for a king. He said, this will be the behavior of the king that will reign over you. I'm warning you what's coming. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and be his own horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. Your son, who should be in your family business, they're going to get drafted in the king's business. He'll appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, not yours. And some to make his weapons of wars, not yours. And equipments for his chariots. He will take your daughters who ought to be marrying sons coming into your family business. And they'll be his perfumers, cooks and bakers. He will take your private property, the best of your fields, your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his cronies. He will take a tenth of your grain. Oh, that it was only a tenth. And your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. 
He'll take a tenth of your sheep. And you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day and say, we want a tax cut. We want regulations that are rolled back. And I'm going to say, no, you chose this. By the way, Israel split in two over a tax revolt. If you look at it, that's what happened. Daniel was throwing their lines down because he was ruining the satraps skimming scheme. If you start seeing politics in the Bible, you'll see it everywhere. Because the Bible's mainly about politics. It's about people interacting in an organized manner. You know the word heaven? It's in there, I can't remember, 60 times or something like that. Most of the time it refers to the sky. Word hell, if you include Sheol in the Old Testament and Hades, and it's in there about 60 times. Government, king, kingdom, 2,000 times. Because the Bible's not about life. It's about how to live effectively. It's how to win, how to be victorious, how to overcome. And what the Bible shows us is what self-governance looks like. It has three pillars. Rule of law. God gets to make the rules. And he wants us to interact with one another constructively in love. Consent of the governed. He wants us to have accountability in our structure. And Private property. He wants each person to have individual sovereignty. Well, Marxism has three pillars too. Rule of the elites. They now have a national religion that they're offering us. Political correctness. Political, determined by people. Correct, moral absolutes. Let me ask you this. How are they, what political process are they using to determine what's morally right? Are you getting to vote on that any? I just want to... The elites tell us. Not rule of God, rule of the elites. Consent of the elites. And collectivism, which essentially means they get all the property and get to do with it whatever they want. Well, it's easy to tell where that comes from. As we see there in increasingly becoming bolder and more brazen in their quest for tyranny, it's becoming clear they want to kill us. But again, our job is not to worry about that. It's to be a faithful witness, a testimony, martyreo. The, the translators usually call it witness or testimony except when somebody loses their physical life and then they translate it martyr. And that's how you win at life is by being a faithful witness, zealots for liberty. If we, not to seize the power for ourselves, but to do like George Washington did. To take the power and then surrender it back to the people. Well, some people say, well, don't get in politics because it's dirty. Where's the gospel supposed to go, folks? Just the people that are already clean? Well, now you know my motivation for supporting COS. I want to win at life. COS is much more than a resolution. It's an awakening. It's a reorganizing. Madison and Jefferson both told us, if you want to know where the solution to our country is, look in the mirror. We get the government we deserve, they said. Well, the Bible tells us this too. 
It's in Romans 13.1, which says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Who's appointed in America? We the people. So if you want to look at who's responsible for this mess, look in the mirror. Now, we can't fix the mess. It's not up to us to choose for other people. What can we do? We can be faithful. And our victory as an individual is actually scored individually. Will we overcome as Jesus overcame? Overcome temptation to be selfish. To worry about what other people think of us and their criticism more than we worry about what God thinks of us and his approval. Uh, will we try to control or will we love others? You know, Jesus works through us. I was interested to discover that Jesus sent a box of cigars to somebody. <laughs> you know, Donald Trump met with a group of pastors and he said something I think was very accurate, very prophetic. He said, you've gotten soft. But if we'll fight, we'll bless our nation. And who knows? God may bless us with another 400 years of self-governance. But that's not ours to say. Our job is to resist. We are the resistance. We're supposed to be the resistance. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you. That's a promise. Doesn't tell us what flee looks like or how long it'll take. We're just told, keep resisting. Never, never give up. We're not fighting people. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We're fighting evil. We first have to fight it in our own hearts. We all have a selfish flesh. And then we have to fight it in our own spheres by choosing to make choices out of values to do what we know is right instead of what we feel like doing. When they lie to us, we feel like smashing them in the nose, don't we? But that's not what we're told to do. We're told to let God do that. Nothing's gonna, nobody's going to get away, from anything, away with anything. And God is merciful. And we should celebrate that because we all need mercy. Being a part of this movement is a privilege and to fight alongside one another. If we resist, we win. If we overcome temptation and rejection just like Jesus overcame, we win at life. Our deepest desires are fulfilled when we reign and rule by serving in harmony with one another, with God. Mark told me last night, a lady said, you know, there's a feeling I had here I just never have had before. Well, I'm going to suggest to you what that is. It's the feeling of doing what you were made to do. To rule and reign in harmony. In the new earth where righteousness dwells, we're going to have an earth of righteousness. Now righteousness is dikosune in Greek and it means everything works in harmony like a body. That's what it means. 
And the reason that's going to happen is because we're going to have an administration of people only who have proven that that's what they're willing to do. Do we have the courage to live that way? If we do, we win. It doesn't matter what the outcome is. We win. It's a privilege to fight alongside of you. We need about 100,000 more. I don't know what the right number is. I was, if I ratio Gideon's 300 to our current population. (laughs) But it's a privilege to be with one another. Do not despair. God's on our side. Thank you very much. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.